Our reading this morning is Isaiah 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the, Lord, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with, their ear, see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. It's so good to see you. We're really glad you're here as we continue this series in the book of Isaiah. And you, you probably have had this experience. I've had this experience. There are a number of moments in my life uh, that I can, I can remember exactly what I saw, where I was, what happened, and, and even years or even decades later, I can remember the exact moment. So when I was a kid, maybe eight or nine years old, it was my birthday, huge Royals fan, and so we go to the stadium. So it's me and my dad and my brothers and, and like my little posse of friends. And I don't know if you ever like feel kind of responsible for something when you've put it together, you know, even if you're like just going to a movie, but you chose it or you gathered and suddenly you feel like this better be good. This is on me. You know, if it's not good, you're like, I'm so sorry, guys. And so I'm sitting there thinking like, come on, come on, fellas. Like this is the Royals. So you never know. And I'm just hoping for an okay day. But Bo Jackson steps to the plate, hits a line drive to right field and then scores. So inside the park home run. And my friends are like high-fiving me. They're like, it's his birthday, you know. And I'm like, little Jeremy's just soaking it up. He's like, guys, you can carry me on your shoulders. It's fine, you know. But here I am 30 years later still remembering the moment like it was yesterday. And, and there have been far more significant moments in my lifetime, far more significant things I've seen when my wife was coming down the center aisle with everybody on their feet, ready to be married, an amazing sight that I will never forget. Everything is before or after that moment. Or, or the birth of our, our three boys, the, the moment when that happened, the sheer, just overwhelming uh, intensity and just like mind-blowing 
beauty of the moment, things that I will never, ever forget. Or even the last moments with, with a loved one or, or seeing somebody before or after passing away, a moment that I will never forget. And in our passage today, Isaiah has that moment in his life, far more of a significant moment than probably any of us have ever experienced. And it's a moment for Isaiah that everything can become before or after this one single moment. He is ushered up into the heavenly temple of God. He sees the Lord high and lifted up, and he thinks he is like toast. And, and rightly so, because he is unclean. He is sinful. He does not belong in the presence of this holy God. But moments before he, he expects to be demolished, he cries out, my eyes have seen the king. And I, I love that line. It's one of the great lines in all of Isaiah. This is one of the great chapters in all of Isaiah. The late Tim Keller says that all of biblical religion exists in this single chapter. And then I just love this phrase, my eyes have seen the king. And so that's my, my title today. I know sermon titles are just for the preachers themselves, but the title is my eyes have seen the king, exclamation point. We'll make sure the exclamation point gets on the website. But this passage holds two beautiful things in tension, two truths about God in tension, his absolute glory-filled holiness and his unbelievable merciful kindness. So the holiness of God and then the, the mercy of God. And then in that tension, we are invited into something. We're invited to draw near. So that's the three things today, holiness, mercy, draw near. So let's pray and we'll get right into the text. Father, would you open our eyes this morning? Open our eyes to your power and holiness and glory and open our eyes to your mercy and love and patience. You have everything and need nothing. We have nothing and need everything. And so show us who you are. Let us get out of our own heads this morning and have our, our view elevated, our, our view of you elevated. We confess often a low view of you, always a low view of you compared to who you actually are. And so, Lord, would you lift our eyes? Would you change us? Would you heal us? Would you send us out into your glorious mission? Lord, we can only pray all this through Jesus Christ. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, let's pick it up actually right before uh, chapter 6 begins. So if you have a pew Bible near you or you've got your bulletin, feel free to follow along there. But in Isaiah 1 through 5, we've seen the prophet just, just trying to make every appeal he can for Israel to turn back to the Lord. He's, he's constantly calling Israel back. They're, they've fallen away. They're still doing all the good religious stuff, and yet their hearts are far from God. And so he's, he's telling them that, he's warning them that, that judgment is coming. And after all these, these five chapters of appeals, the very last line you get at the end of chapter five is this. If one looks at the land, there is only darkness and distress. Even the sun will be darkened by clouds. And so translation, it is not going well for Israel, and Isaiah is discouraged. He's probably ready to quit. Now, most of the Old Testament prophetic books are only a couple of chapters long, you know, two or three chapters, the minor prophets, we call them. And so maybe Isaiah is thinking that in this moment, like, all right, I'm one of those five-chapter guys. Like, this is it. It was a good run. 
but nothing happened, and this is the end. And in that moment, something happens. And, and thanks be to God, praise be to God, that Isaiah does not end with chapter 5. As I've said before, every single chapter in Isaiah is better than the one that came before it. And so in chapter 6, it begins, In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah was not a great king spiritually. He did not lead Israel well spiritually. But this was a time of stability and prosperity for God's people. So they were, they were not under the threat yet of foreign invasion. They still had a lot of the prosperity left over from the years of David and Solomon. So things were, were going pretty good for Israel. And yet anytime a king dies in the ancient world, this immediately becomes a moment of transition and turmoil for the people. It's a moment of insecurity. And so actually insecurity is one of the biggest themes in the book of Isaiah. God's people are insecure. In this moment, they do not have anyone on the throne. And, and Assyria is, is bearing down on them, saying, you better make a treaty with us or we'll wipe you out. And so the question for Israel throughout the book is, who are you going to trust when your back is against the wall, when you are hard-pressed, when your life is on the line to whom will you turn? And so this vision is, is what comes immediately in the year that King Uzziah died. And what we see Isaiah doing is he's simply going up to the temple, the earthly temple. He's going to church like, like any other time. And so maybe like some of us, he, he comes into church, you know, he's, he's trying to get there a few minutes early, where's the coffee, finds the coffee, he's looking around, who's here, what are they wearing, where do I sit, all this stuff. Uh, Jack Miller, one of my favorite preachers, he's passed away now, but he says, Isaiah goes up to the temple and the last person he expects to see is there, God himself. And so it says that Isaiah is suddenly pulled up from the earthly temple into the heavenly one. He says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. See, the line between the earthly temple and the heavenly one becomes blurred for the prophet. He suddenly gains a, a true uh, vision of the Lord as he actually is. The, the temple seems to, to, the earthly temple is modeled after the heavenly one. There's an altar, there's a throne, there's attendance to the king. And he sees that there is a king on the throne. So Uzziah might be, de might be dead, but there is still a king on the throne. The real king is still reigning and ruling. And the train of his robe filled the temple. I mean, that's like, I don't know if that's like a Batman-style cape or like just a long robe, like the angels are thinking, how long do you want this thing? I mean, it's kind of cool. Like only God could pull that off, right? I mean, a robe that just fills an entire massive temple is marvelous. All right, verse 2. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. Now, the, the word seraphim, the Hebrew word seraph, it's the word fire. So these are literally flying creatures, glorious, flying, angelic, like eagles. In, in my translation, the JSLV, we, we just translate it firebirds. All right, the firebirds are circling the throne of God. And they have six wings, two to fly 
two to cover their face, lest they look directly on the face of God and be destroyed, and two to cover their feet, and the feet are a symbol of uncleanness for the people of Israel. And as they circle, they cry out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And so picture these, these angelic firebird creatures. And hopefully when you, when you think of angels, when you think of the seraphim, you don't picture like, like the kind of sad, mopey, precious moments like sad babies. But instead you picture like basically like F-16 fighter planes made out of fire with six wings and verse 4 says that when they speak, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Like these are wild, powerful creatures. I kind of got into the seraphim this week. I kind of took like a seraph detour. I didn't get all the way to YouTube because once you get there, there's no coming back. But I turned into a seraphim guy this week. But these are unbelievable creatures. If we see one of these creatures, we fall on our faces and worship. And yet they would lift us right up saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm a created being just like you. And what are these unbelievable creatures doing but crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. I mean, God is not just like one step above them in, in an order of being, but rather he is, he is off the charts. There is, there is a chart with all of us creatures and then there is God and even these unbelievable creatures realize that. Holy, holy, holy. That word holiness, it's the only one that gets repeated three times in a row like this in the, in the whole Old Testament. And it's a reference to, to God's moral purity, His absolute purity, as well as his, his separateness from the rest of creation. So He is set apart. He is holy. He is unlike us. We are unlike Him. Only God is holy, and He is holy, holy, holy. And He says that the whole earth, as the seraphim calling out to one another, the whole earth is full of, of His glory. That word glory, it's the Hebrew word kavud. The kavud glory of God is His manifest presence with His covenant people. It's not just the, the omnipresence of God that He's everywhere at once generally, but it's the manifest presence of God. It's the face towards you presence of God. It's one-on-one -on -one in the room with you. That's the face of God turned towards His people. So we only see this word kavud glory with God's people. He doesn't reveal that to the nations and to the world broadly, but He only reveals it to His covenant people. I'll give you a couple examples. In Exodus 6, 16, the glory of God is a pillar of cloud and fire. It says the kavud glory fills the tabernacle in Exodus 40. And then it fills the temple when it's constructed in 1 Kings 8. It said that worshipers could on occasion see the glory of God in Exodus 29 and then Psalm 63 that we read earlier. And then John 1 says this glory was present in Jesus Christ, but the world couldn't see it. Even more, we are promised in Isaiah 11 and other places, Habakkuk 2, that one day the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. In other words, the whole earth will become the sanctuary or the temple of God and His kavud 
glorious presence will fill it completely. That's what we have to look forward to. And so the question here is, when you think about God, what do you think about? When you try to picture God, what is it that comes into your mind? Now, I feel like one of my my callings in life as a pastor is to help remind people of the, the loving kindness and the father heart of God, that he is compassionate and merciful, that he's near, that he's long suffering, that he's with you. And yet that doesn't mean that he is weak or needy or timid. Instead, the God that we see in the scriptures is absolutely pure and holy and glory itself. Glory is just who he is. Holiness is just who he is. And it's because of this unbelievably glorious nature that his mercy is so astounding. That his acceptance of us is so unbelievable. His grace towards us is so amazing. And the reason we struggle with this is because we're used to thinking of power and control and authority and sovereignty primarily in terms of their misuse, like in terms of the abuse of those things. And we think of of maybe love and kindness and gentleness as as associated with, with weakness or timidity. And we do this because we're, we're thinking in human terms. But God is, is both perfectly. He is perfectly good, glory, and holiness. And He is absolutely powerful in His mercy and kindness and love. And so His glory is merciful and His mercy is glorious. And so is this how you picture the Lord? Do you see both him high and lifted up with the train of his robe filling the glory and his face turned towards you? Smiling, content, happy. Now we might ask, how how can these two things be in our lives? It's what Isaiah would have been wondering in this moment as he is ushered into this throne room. And so that's the second thing we see in this passage, the merciful kindness of God's presence. Verse 5, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And right there, what Isaiah is doing, first of all, this is the first time we hear him speak in the book of Isaiah. The first time we hear his own words from his mouth, and the first word out of his mouth is, is woe. Which is, a, which is a curse. It's an announcement of judgment already on someone. And so it's kind of on, on brand for a prophet to begin his ministry by yelling out woe. But he's not saying woe to the nations and he's not saying woe to the house of God. He's saying woe to me. He is announcing judgment on himself. The message simply says, I am as good as dead. He knows that his sinfulness does not belong in this temple, does not belong in the presence of God. He suddenly has a right view of himself. Once he gets that right view of God, he sees himself as he is, and he says, I am done for. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. How can anyone look on the true King and not be immediately destroyed? The answer comes in the next verse. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, 
This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. See, Isaiah's sin is suddenly dealt with. God can't, can't merely just, just brush off the sin because there's a penalty associated with it. The penalty is death. And do you notice where this, this coal comes from? It comes from the altar. And the altar is where sacrifices are made. And so a sacrificial offering has been made on behalf of Isaiah. The only way Isaiah can come into this temple and stand in front of the throne and, and see this glorious vision is if an animal has been killed and the coals from that fire are brought to him. Forgiveness is personally applied. Your sins have been forgiven. Your guilt has been covered. You are clean. You are good. In this moment, none of that sin matters anymore. And if, and if God says you are good, if God says you are clean, if God says you are guilt-free, then that is the only thing that matters. And it's in this moment that we hear the voice of God for the first time. Verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Isaiah can't believe he's still alive. And as soon as he hears God speak, you know, out of this triune being saying, who's going to go with us? Who's going to be our, our messenger to earth? I mean, I picture Isaiah in this moment like Tim Tebow at a football chapel and like the chaplain just like is out sick. He's like, oh, oh, I got this. Oh God, I was made for this. I mean, you can't stop Isaiah. He cries out. Here am I. Send me. And God says, go tell this people. And he tells them the message. See, Isaiah has his prophetic calling. He's been brought up into the throne room of God. He's been invited into the fiery presence of God. And rather than being consumed, he is commissioned and this is true for a lot of the, the big-time prophets in the Old Testament. Think about Moses. God drew him into his presence, the, the fiery bush. And he said, take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. Samuel was sleeping, and God kept calling out to him, Samuel, Samuel. Finally, Samuel comes to his senses and says, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Jeremiah, same thing, Jeremiah 1, God comes to Jeremiah and says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, I set you apart. Ezekiel is the trippy one. Ezekiel 1 and 2, there's like creatures, there's like four living creatures, and they have wheels, and they're rolling, and they have eyes. God calls them the son of man, tells them to eat like the word of God. Like Ezekiel's got to be thinking like, Samuel was just like woken up and just says like, I'm right here, God. Like what is with all of this stuff? But it's kind of like the rest of Ezekiel just flows right from that. The whole thing's wild, kind of apocalyptic stuff. But Isaiah, Isaiah gets his call. Isaiah gets his commissioning. And what I love about this moment is that Isaiah has zero shame. Isaiah, Isaiah knows and he trusts that his sin has just been taken away. His guilt has been covered. And if God says that I am good, then nothing anybody else says 
No one down on earth, none of my enemies, none of my opponents, none of the the attacking thoughts in my head. In the words of Dr. K. West, you can't tell me nothing. Only what God says matters. The second half was not from him, but the first half was. (laughs) Nothing else matters when God takes away your sin. There is zero shame left where there is zero guilt left. Any shame on God's people is not coming from God himself. It's coming from the enemy. Conviction is an okay thing, being aware of your sin. But shame is the enemy's attempt to just heap things on you that the Lord has not put on you. Now that Isaiah has seen God high and lifted up, now that he knows that he can enter the presence of the Almighty God with no fear, I mean, he's a changed man. And it's a good thing because the the passage does go on. We'll see that in a moment. But what's happening in the the soul of Isaiah in this moment is that he, he realizes he's a far worse sinner than he ever imagined and that he's simultaneously far more forgiven and accepted than he ever could believe. And this is exactly what gives us the confidence to to go back out into the world, especially to serve other people. Isaiah goes from being needy of people's approval and, and needy of the status of this world to suddenly not needing that at all. Because his mission's not about to get easier, it's about to get a lot harder. And so how can he go through the rest of his life with no followers, nobody listening to him, nobody uh, trusting and obeying his words? Only if he has this true view of God is both glory and mercy. Only if God is big enough and strong enough and holy enough for his words to carry the kind of weight that they do. And only, only if God is, is also merciful enough, compassionate enough, patient enough, loving enough to personally take away his sins, to, to remove the guilt from his lips through the work of the sacrificial offering. We can't comprehend this, as I said, because we just think in in human terms and there is nothing like God, His power and His mercy at once. To see God high and lifted up and with a huge smile on His face, this is the, the task of our lives. This is the essence of Christianity. This is the essence of true Christian experience. It's to see God as He really is. And when we see Him on the throne and we see Him delighting in what He has made, we realize He is in total control and everything is going exactly as He planned it. It's kind of wild to believe because we look out on the world and we see the sin and the brokenness and the corruption and the hate and the the disorder and wars. And we think, how in the world can this be going according to God's plan? And we're seeing all the the sort of shrapnel from, from sin and brokenness and death that's come into the world. And we think certainly this is all spinning out of control. And yet God is seated on the throne. And the whole thing is unfolding exactly according to his plan. Your whole life is unfolding exactly according to his plan. He's not not standing. He's not wringing his hands. He's not pacing. He's not scheming on a whiteboard. He's not trying to find his gear for battle. 
He's just seated. Receiving the praise of the seraphim, reigning and ruling. He's at ease. And how many of my, my anxieties, my struggles would, would lighten if I, could, if I could just see God in this way and could just hold these two things in tension, the utter beauty and majesty of God and the unbelievable mercy and grace. If I could picture God as, as not somebody who's upset with me, but almost like a, a warrior who's fought off a thousand lesser warriors to, to provide protection and to get back to the house, but then once inside the house to simply pick up his beloved child. So the newborn baby only sees the smile on her father's face and doesn't see the massive struggle and all the war outside that went into it to protect her from everything. But just can see the, the strength and the delight of her father. Is that how we see God? Now, I'm, I'm t I was tempted this week to stop at verse 8. Almost all the sermons that I have looked at, I've actually preached this passage. It was like 15 years ago, and I stopped at verse 8. It's really tempting because it's like this great, here am I, send me moment. And this is a call to mission. This is a, a profound uh, demonstration of the pattern of God, that He draws us in so that He sends us out. He draws us in to know Him and He sends us out to make Him known. He draws us in to renew us and then He sends us out as a renewing agent in the world. The reason we can't quite stop at verse 8 is because God keeps talking. And verses 9 through 13 do happen. And, and they're not quite as catchy, but here's what God says. Go, tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. He says, go and preach my message, but just so you know, no one will listen to you. In fact, this message will have a hardening effect on their hearts. It will actually make them more upset with me and with you. What's interesting is that this verse, verse 9, is the one out of all of Isaiah that gets quoted the most in the New Testament. In Matthew 13, Jesus quotes it when he's talking about his parables because he says, those who know me understand my parables, but those outside the kingdom, they are ever seeing, but never understanding, always hearing, never perceiving. And so he quotes this line against them. In the same way, at the end of the book of Acts, like the last couple of verses in Acts 28, Paul looks out on the Jews and Romans who have rejected his word. And he says, the Holy Spirit was right when he said this about your ancestors, Keep hearing and not understanding. And so for Isaiah, for Jesus, for Paul, they understood that part of their identity, part of their mission was rejection, was, was not receiving approval, was receiving hatred and persecution. And it's not that Isaiah didn't care, that Jesus or Paul didn't care. We see all three people weeping over the sins of those they're trying to reach. But they each knew God. They had seen the living God. Paul on, on the road when Jesus appeared to him. Jesus, of course. And so the rejection just didn't, didn't hit as deep. Once they had seen God as he truly is, it just didn't, didn't touch that place on the inside of them. The last few verses are perhaps a little confusing. Um, 
Isaiah says, how long, Lord? And God says, a really long time, like the rest of your life and then some. He says, basically, the whole forest will be burned down. Only a stump will remain. He says, I'm going to basically cut down everyone and leave a tenth in the land. Only a tenth of God's people will be left after this judgment. And yet it says right at the end of the chapter, the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So the whole forest, forest is burned, but a stump remains. Within that stump is a single seed. In the Bible, a seed is always in a metaphor for offspring or children. God's saying a single child will come from this people. Out of all the tribes, one will remain, Judah. Out of all of Judah, one will come, a single child, Jesus Christ. From this little seed, a sapling will grow. From this sapling, a mighty oak will come. From this mighty oak, an entire forest will be reborn. And what's unbelievable is that Isaiah 61 actually calls us who believe in the Messiah, oaks of righteousness. Jesus himself would later say, I'm the vine and you are the branches. So all who believe in him are are joined to him and are the branches on the vine of his life, drawing nutrients from his own spirit. So the whole thing is cut down, but a seed remains. And so only a tenth remains in the land. This is the idea of the remnant that we're going to see over and over in Isaiah. A small group of faithful believers will remain. And from that group, the Messiah will come. It's one of the first and most beautiful gospel turns in all of Isaiah. And this sort of puts the pieces together for us. If God is totally glorious and holy and totally merciful, how does that come to us? It's through this child, through Jesus. That's the third and last thing, and it's, it's a simple message. Draw near to God. I mean, if this is true, that Jesus has made a way for us to enter into the, the heavenly temple, that our sins are atoned for, our guilt is removed, then what that means is that there is now a continuous invitation to draw near to God, that he is welcoming us, inviting us, beckoning us to come to him. And so this passage shows us exactly what true Christianity is all about. It's not about following the rules. It's not about moral conformity. It's not about right beliefs and right doctrine. It's not even about just emotional experience. But it's about access to the living God through the sacrificial offering of Jesus. True spiritual experience is saying, my eyes have seen the King See, God is always going after our hearts. The great sin of Israel was, at this time was not idolatry. It's that their hearts had grown cold. And they were still going through all of the religious motions and activities, but their hearts were far from God. This passage helps us remember that God doesn't need servants. He doesn't need little minions running around doing the work of his kingdom but he longs to have children. Children that come to him, draw near to him, worship him, that are overjoyed in his presence, that want to be where he is and go where he goes. 
He longs to see our hearts in love with Him. St. Augustine said this in the 5th century, Give me a man in love. He knows what I mean. Give me one who yearns. Give me one who is hungry. Give me one who is in a far away country, thirsty and sighing for the springs of the eternal home. Give me that sort of man. He knows what I mean. This is what God longs for. Not that we would know about him, but that we would know him, that we would see him, that we would draw near to him. Hebrews 4, it's almost a perfect reflection on our passage. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly the faith we profess. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There is so much gold here. We have a great high priest in Jesus, one who ushers us into the presence of God. Jesus has made the way for us to draw near, to see him as he is and not be destroyed. Jesus is that atoning sacrifice that cleanses us, purifies us, heals us. And this is the heart of the Christian life. Tim Keller said, I love this line, the reason Jesus died on the cross was not so you could run programs and go to meetings. People can do all sorts of religious activity without Jesus' death and resurrection. He died so you can have access to God. This is true Christian experience that you would draw near to the living God through the life of Jesus. And there say, my eyes have seen the King. Let's pray. Father, you are so good that you would give us a glimpse of who you are. Just a, a glimpse of your glory. That not only has Isaiah seen you, but we too get to see you. In the face of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, we draw near. We enter your temple. The, the big curtain separating us from your presence has been torn down. We come directly to where you are. And you embrace us as Father. Lord, help us, each one of us, help us as a church to hold together your absolute holiness, your kavud glory, and your unbelievable, compassionate mercy expressed in Christ. Lord, how many of us need that, that healing touch, that, that coal from the fire to remind us that our sins have been atoned for, the guilt has been removed, and so shame is no more. We can come boldly before your throne. We can live boldly in this world. We can even suffer knowing that you are still on the throne. Despite all the uncertainty and all the insecurity that you are reigning and you are seated in control, content, at ease. Lord, I pray that you would draw our hearts and our eyes upward even through the rest of this series. May we have our view of you elevated. May we see you as you truly are. 
Lord, for anyone here who maybe doesn't know you, doesn't know if they're a believer, if they, if they are in right standing with you, even now, Lord, would you reveal yourself to them. Let them feel a bit of your love and mercy and call them to yourself. And they put their hope and their faith and their life in Christ and receive that eternal glory that you have for us. Lord, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.